0: Tonight we are going to look at Isaiah chapter 42. It's a very important passage in the book of Isaiah. This is the first of four servant songs, they're called. Uh, There are four songs in the book of Isaiah that talk about this person who is the servant of the Lord. And he's not described any way other than that, the servant. So he's the preeminent servant of the Lord. He embodies what it means to be a servant of the Lord. In this first servant song, we find out in particular what he's going to do, a good bit about what he's going to do. And we find that he's going to embody so many of the things that had been hinted at in the history of Israel. We find in this passage in particular that the servant will exercise some of the functions that were associated with the kinds of things that prophets did. He was going to speak truthfully. He was going to have zeal for justice and for righteousness. And the word going forth was going to be a key part of how that was going to be accomplished. But we also find in this passage that the servant is going to also exercise the kinds of uh, roles and uh, things that are associated often with the priests. In Israel, the priests were the ones who represented you to God and also who represented God to the people. They primarily dealt with worship and with the sacrificial system, but they also were the doctors in Israel. And they were the people who were supposed to be able to sympathize with you um, in your brokenness, in your fallenness and help point you to the gospel and to God's goodness and his mercy. But then also we find that this servant is going to exercise the kinds of things that are associated in the Old Testament with the king and the true king. Now, Israel had had kings, and they have kings even when Isaiah is prophesying. But they're not kings who really live up to all that the kinghood and the kingship pointed to. But we find in this one who's going to be called the servant um, attributes of all these different roles, which for a lot of people, and really for, for most of the Jews until Christ comes, they don't think of these things coming together in one person. And it really is Jesus coming in the flesh and living as he does, saying what he says and doing what he does, that causes them to go back to reconsider the scriptures and find connections where they hadn't seen connections before. And the servant songs in Isaiah become very important places for the early Christians to understand what just happened. I think that's the best way. You know, something happened with Jesus coming that changed everything and made these Jewish monotheistic people go back, look at their scriptures again, and be like, whoa, it was there, but we didn't have eyes to see it. Now, when we talk about these three sort of functions that are sort of hinted at and prefigured in the Old Testament of the prophet, the priest, and the king, what I want you to understand is you have a need in your life for every one of those, You have a need in your life for every one of those. And actually, already in your life, something is fulfilling the functions that a priest is meant to fulfill. Something is fulfilling the functions that a prophet should be fulfilling in your life. Speaking truth that you can live by. Somebody or something is exercising kingly uh, authority in your life. Telling you that this is what you should do and that you must obey it. And this is how you can get things done. And so we want to look at the way this picture in Isaiah 42 develops, the way it prefigures and shows us who Jesus is wanted to be. But also what's really interesting about this passage is in the chapter before this, Israel as a nation is also described as the servant of the Lord. So when this servant song first comes, you find thinking, well, this is Israel that's supposed to be this. But then as the servant songs developed, there's four of them in Isaiah, as you develop them, and we're going to look at some of the other ones as well this semester, you realize that the nation of Israel can't possibly fully contain all that the servant songs are talking about. And so what you're going to be driven to this conclusion. And this is what the early Christians were driven to this conclusion, that Jesus is the only one who really fulfills what's spoken of in these servant songs. He is preeminently the servant of the Lord. And he describes himself that way on numerous occasions. One of the most famous is where he says, the son of man, which is a way he uh, referred to himself on numerous occasions. He said at one point, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The very last thing he did in the, in the book of uh, John, in the gospel of John, uh, the foot washing. It says there in John's gospel that now he showed them the full extent of his love, his disciples who he'd been with these three years by disrobing, putting a towel around his waist and washing their feet, taking the posture of a servant, taking a role actually that Jewish servants were not even expected to do, which was to wash feet. But Jesus takes it willingly to show them the full extent of his love. And so what you find is not only is Jesus preeminently the prophet, not only is he the priest par excellence, not only is he the true and mighty king, but he actually calls his people to live out those functions in the world even today. And so, first we're going to look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophet, priest, and king here in Isaiah 42. And then we're going to consider a little bit, how is it that Jesus is going to work through us to still bring these these things into the world that so desperately needs prophets, priests, and kings? Particularly the prophet, the priest, and the king. So, let's read this scripture passage. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We're going to read the first 17 verses of Isaiah 42 and then we'll dig into it. This is the word of the Lord. Here is my servant. Really in the Hebrew it's behold, look at my servant, my chosen one in whom I delight. And in the Hebrew it's literally in whom my soul delights. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nation's The Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, Yahweh, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. I am Yahweh. That is my name. Whenever it's L-O-R-D capitalized, it's really Yahweh. That's what's being spoken of, the covenant name that God has given to his people. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See the former things, in other words, the things that he's announced were going to take place. See the former things have taken place and new things I declare before they spring into being. I announce them to you. Like What kinds of new things? Well, here we see. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that is in it. You islands and all who live in them. Let the desert and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands the Lord will march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal. With a shout, he will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. I will lay waste to the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things I will do. I will not forsake them. But those who trust in idols who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you for this passage. We do thank you for the way you picture for us here Jesus, the prophet, priest, and king that we need. And We pray that you would open our hearts to fall more deeply in love with him as your scriptures reveal him to us tonight. Send your spirit. We want to see Jesus. Amen. So, like I said, in this passage, we see the servant. But why do we see the servant? The servant, in one way, you could say, is a means to the end. And if you'd start with this passage, the first thing you see is that the Lord has a heart for the world and he makes provision for what the world needs. You see how he starts? He says, Look at my servant. But if you looked at chapter 41, you would see it's, that this sort of comes in the middle of a discussion where God is saying, look, let the, let the, idols, let the idols present their evidence that they're really the gods that, that exist. They aren't. They don't exist. And so this comes, now look at my servant. Look at my servant. I am the one who has a heart for the nation. I am the one who is committed to bringing justice to the nations, he says in verse 1. And here's how I'm going to do it. This is the first place where where God kind of begins to unveil much more detail about how he's going to bring about what he has been committed to from the very beginning of creation. The thing that God has been committed to is to making his people to be his people and bringing justice to to all of creation. Now this word justice, we tend to think of it more narrowly than the Bible does. The justice that's being talked about several times in this passage is bigger than just a judge deciding the right thing. It really refers to everything being made right. It it fits in with this Hebrew idea of shalom, which sometimes is translated peace, but it means much more than that. It means that everything is as it should be. And that's what God is committed to. And the servant is coming to make that happen. Now, like I said, is the servant is Jesus, and particularly as you get into the other servant songs, in, in a lot of ways, you can, disc- you can sort of understand these servant songs to refer to Israel, but then you get to Isaiah 53 the, the, and, and that servant song, and it just doesn't make sense anymore. And you're driven to say, well, there's something else going on here. When it talks about the punishment that brought us peace was on him, it's clearly referring to somebody apart from the nation of Israel referring to Jesus. And so after you get all that, you come back to this servant song. You say this is talking about Jesus, but it's also talking about what God wants to be doing through his people on this earth. But Jesus is the one who brings together things that nobody in the Old Testament would have thought come together. The prophet, the priest, and the king. So let's look at those The first is Jesus is the preeminent prophet. Now, what does a prophet do? A prophet is concerned with truth and justice and uses the word, the word of God, to accomplish the task that God has given them. Okay, So the prophet is concerned with justice and the word is the way that he is going to be about bringing justice. It may be helpful to know that there are more places in the Old Testament where prophets apply God's word to their present situation, what we might call foretelling, then there are places where the prophets do foretelling. We tend to think of prophets and we tend to think prophets are people that can tell you about the future. They're divine fortune tellers with a, with a special access to God. And so they're They're accurate. That that's not actually the main function that they have, even in the Old Testament. Yes, it's important that they tell about things that are going to happen. And they do that. But most of their ministry actually involves taking the word of God, particularly the Mosaic law, and looking at Israel and saying, you guys are not living up to that. And you need to. You need to return. You need to repent. And even Isaiah, you see that all over the place. So the prophet is not just somebody who predicts the future. The way to understand the prophet primarily, their, their primary role is to speak God's word into a situation and see justice, rightness be restored to everything God has made. So Jesus, you see, is the preeminent prophet who fulfills all of this hope. There is a hope running all through the Bible that God would make things right. And he tells us that he's committed to this. And he keeps telling us time and time again. And he keeps speaking and he tells us that his word will not return void, but it will accomplish the purpose for which he sent it out. And we see all running through the Bible this idea that God's word will be effectual in bringing about this kingdom. And Jesus is the one who lives out all that is hinted at in this idea of the prophet. Look at the way uh, prophetic images are applied to him in this passage. The first is in in verse 1 where it says that I will put my spirit on him. Not just everybody in the Old Testament era is described as having God's spirit on them. The anointing of God's spirit was done primarily for priests, or sorry, for prophets and kings. So it may be a kingly image here, but I think the way he talks next about him speaking means that what it's really referring to here at this point in verse one is more the, the prophetic image that the prophet is the one who will have God's Spirit put on him. And so it will be with this servant. He will be one on whom the Spirit will be anointed and poured. And it goes on to say that he will bring justice. The Spirit will rest upon him so that he can bring justice. Down in verse 7, it says that he is going to work that God is going to hold him by the hand to make him a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, verse 7, look at this, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. And you may think, well, that doesn't sound like a prophet's work. That sounds like the kind of person who sort of takes matters into his own hands. But if you look at one of the later servant songs in Isaiah chapter 61, This image is developed a little more. And it says this in in verse 1 of Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. See, there's that same idea. The spirit, I've been anointed because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. So, here's the same imagery that we find here in Isaiah 42. When it develops further in Isaiah 61, you find that in particular, it's through the ministry of the word that these things are going to be accomplished. So, this is a prophetic role that's being talked about here, even in Isaiah 42. And what do you, does anybody recognize those words I just read from Isaiah 61? These are the words that Jesus took to himself one Saturday. Sabbath day, in the synagogue, at his local synagogue, he went to church, he was asked to read, because what they generally did is if you were a Hebrew man of age, sufficient age, then you would take turns reading from the scroll, and you were also expected to say a few words of explanation. So Jesus, it's his turn, he picks up the scroll of Isaiah, he turns to chapter 61, or unrolls it to 61, and he reads these words, and then... He says, today, these words are fulfilled in your midst. And everybody goes crazy. (laughs) And they want to kill him. Blasphemy. What? So Jesus leaves us no doubt. He takes these words from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah and says, this is talking about me. He is the one whose word is going to go forth to free captives to open the eyes of the blind, to set people free from the dungeons and the prisons that they're living in. But he's going to accomplish it in an astonishing way. Look at verse 2. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. So he's a prophet. He's a preacher man. But he's not going to shout. He's not going to cry out. The Hebrew could even be translated shriek. He's not going to shriek. He's not desperate. He's not worried. Frantic. He has absolute confidence that the word will accomplish what it's supposed to accomplish. It's really a remarkable image. A deliverer who doesn't raise his voice. Now that doesn't, that's, pretty, that's pretty unusual in our own day. It was very unusual in, in Isaiah's day as well. In Isaiah's day, we know this because we still have a lot of these monuments. If you did something great, you would set up a monument and tell people about it. A lot of what we know about the ancient world is because archaeologists have found these monuments where kings have written down all the great stuff they did. They tend not to write down any of the bad stuff they did. So, for instance, we don't have any Egyptian monuments to the exodus. That, that shouldn't concern you or make you think that it didn't happen. It actually fits in with what we know about Egyptian kings. They tended not to ever write down anything bad that happened. They only wrote down the good stuff. Right? So this was a day and an age where if you brought about justice and rightness, you would be sure to tell people about it and make a big noise about it. And, of course, we live in a day and age where that goes on all the time. You can drive around our fair city, and you can see various plaques uh, in front of different buildings or different highways talking about which governor did it or which person gave money for this. And even in a lot of churches, maybe churches like you grew up in, you can see little plaques to so you know who paid for all the fun, fancy stuff in the church, right? But that is not the way Jesus does it. Now, I'm not saying that those people are going to hell if they gave money and had their name written on a plaque in their church. Okay, But the point is, this deliverer is is quite unusual in that he doesn't raise his voice. He goes about his ministry in a very gentle and quiet manner. He doesn't do the kinds of things that you would expect a great man to do. And you find Jesus all the time is frustrating people because of this, aren't they? He frustrates his own uh, brothers, half-brothers, technically. He frustrates them. They're like, look, it's the Festival of Lights. It's one of the great Jewish festivals. Why don't you go up there and make a big splash? That's what you should do. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. Then he goes up there anyway, right? And he stands up at the key point in the festival and says, you know, I am the light of the world. (laughs) Um, He just is always doing this sort of stuff. He's got a whole bunch of people following him at one point. This is in John chapter 6. And he turns around to the crowd and he basically says, why are you following me? If you want to follow me, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And it says at that point, many of the disciples left him and followed him no more. Jesus doesn't go about doing his ministry in the way that we would expect. He doesn't raise a big storm. Most of his ministry takes place within a couple miles. He doesn't travel around to the great cities. He never goes to Rome, to the seat of power. Right? He doesn't raise his voice. He doesn't launch a big crusade. Yeah, I know people gather around, but at times he does things to frustrate the crowds and make it difficult for them to follow him and says, you're just following me because you want a free lunch because you saw the miracles I did. (laughs) That's not the way you keep the crowds coming, right? So he's a prophet, but he accomplishes his work in an astonishing way. And then look at this in verse three. It says that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick, he will not snuff out. It's a great book by the, the, the Puritan Richard Sibbs on the bruised reed. It's this imagery of somebody who is barely hanging on. You know what they made? They made things out of reeds in these days. They made bruise, or, uh, um, baskets out of reeds. But a bruised reed is a reed that's barely hanging on by a thread, right? It's not really good for anything, and it's quite vulnerable, and it's about to be completely worthless. And a smoldering wick, what good is a smoldering wick? How fragile it is. How fragile, a smoldering wick that basically the the flame is flickering and it's almost out. But the, the, the ministry of this servant is described in such a way that the bruised reed will not be broken. The smoldering wick will not be snuffed out. And I just wonder, how, how have you ever known the tenderness of the prophetic ministry of Jesus? In other words, I think so often, I think so often the word of God is used as a sledgehammer to beat people up. But the word of the preeminent prophet that we see here is a word that, to use sort of our modern day expression, wouldn't hurt a fly. Now, if you stand against it, if you sort of steel yourself against it, well, look out. That's verse 17, right? If you're going to say to the idols, these are my gods, look out. You're in for a fight and you won't stand. But if you're a broken, vulnerable, fragile person who feels like, I don't have a leg to stand on, I don't have anything to offer to God, I'm a broken, worthless mess, then this is the one you need. Because his word, his word will not kill you. It's not made to kill you. It's made to keep you alive. And to bring you real life. What's his goal? What's his goal? His goal is that the law, look at verse 5, sorry, it's in in verse 4. In his law, the islands will put their hope. Look at verse 4. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. That's a Hebrew parallelism. He's paralleling these two ideas. Till he establishes justice on earth, in his law the islands will put their hope. And that's, that's a really interesting thing. Because we often think about justice and we think that we have our idea of what justice will look like. It means that this will be different and this will be different and this will be different. And probably every one of you, if we gave you a pen and a paper, you could write down your ideas of what needs to be different in this world. Or at least in your world. right? And you could tell God probably quite an earful. But here we find that true justice will be the same as putting our hope in the law. Now, when it talks about the islands, it's talking about, or the nations, it's talking about the same people. It means the people who are outside of Israel. The the vision in Isaiah 42 is not just for Israel, it's for everybody. God is concerned about everybody, and he wants them all to put their hope in his word. Because that is the same thing as bringing justice to the earth. Isn't that fascinating? What that means is that only by trusting in God's law can hope of true justice or rightness or righteousness come to this world. Now, God doesn't have this goal because He's selfish and He just wants everybody to do what He says. It's because he's committed to bringing the whole world to trust in his law because it's the only way to experience the rightness that we were made for. And whenever we fight against his law, we're fighting against his coming kingdom, which is going to put everything to right. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Rosemary Miller has fond of saying, and I I like this, that whenever we pray that, thy kingdom come, what we're really praying is, Lord, dismantle my kingdom. Because the chief obstacle to God's kingdom coming is your kingdom. And the parasite kingdom of Satan that seeks to rob and destroy and twist everything good that God has made. But what does Jesus promise? That my kingdom is advancing and the gates of hell will not be able to stand against it. And you know, you don't attack anybody with a gate. A gate is something you put up to keep something out. It's a picture of Satan's kingdom is being pushed back. And it will not stand. So do you want to be part of that? That's what God's committed to. And that's what the true prophet is bringing about through his word. Jesus is The true prophet. Jesus is the truth. He's the only one who tells you the truth. It isn't always pleasant at first, but his word is true and sure, and you desperately need a voice in your life that is true and that is sure and that can be relied on. You need someone in your life that can tell you no. My pastor, Scotty Smith, used to always say, who in your life can give you a life-giving rebuke? We tend to move away from people that tell us no too many times. But let me tell you, you won't get very far as a Christian unless Jesus gets to tell you no. I heard Tim Keller say once, I hope that you marry somebody who will tell you no. Because if they don't, you'll never really know who they are. If they always agree with you, you'll never really know who they are. I think that's worth thinking about. St. Augustine said it so well one time. Because I think a lot of us bristle at this idea that Christianity, when you come into Christianity, you find pretty quickly that there's this idea of submitting truth and submitting what you believe to something else, that you don't get to just pick and choose what you get to believe. If you embrace Christianity as it is revealed, you have to embrace it. You don't get to pick and choose among revealed truths. Christianity is not something that was constructed, and you get to construct it the way you want. St. Augustine put it well. He said, if you accept what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe. It's yourself. And there's a lot of people, liberals, conservatives, whatever, who think they believe the Bible, but they don't let it tell them no. They basically search the Bible to find things they already agree with, and then they love to camp out in that place. But Jesus has got to tell you no. And he does all the time. And his word can be relied on. Now, what about the false prophets in our world? Because there's lots of them. We live in a world full of messages and false prophets. A world of lies. A world of false assurances. I don't have to tell you that, right? And these false prophets take many forms. Advertisements on TV. Fashion magazines even your teachers sometimes, even your friends can be false teachers, false prophets. The most important thing for you is can you hear the voice of Jesus in the cacophony of all these other voices, all these other voices? What are the voices that are speaking lies to you tonight? And will the true prophet be able to break through? Will you bring all these messages to Jesus and to his word and to reject them if they don't agree with his word? Some of the messages you speak to yourself even. Like, you know, I don't really measure up. You know, I love like one time uh, Martin Luther was talking to a friend and he said, you know, when Satan comes to you and tells you you're a miserable piece of crap, don't try to argue with him. Don't try and argue with him. Say, yeah, of course I am, Satan. And you don't know the half of it. But go take it up with Jesus. He died in my place. Right? Do you know that? Jesus is also the priest par excellence. Now, the priest is the one who deals with our sin and our guilt. He's the one who brings healing. Remember I said in this day and age, the priests were also the doctors. The priest is the one who nurtures us and comforts us. And Jesus is the priest par excellence. Jesus is so gentle. Again, you look at verse three, look at how he deals with us. If you're feeling fragile and worn out tonight, if you're feeling like a worthless burden, I mean, how valuable really is a burned up wick? Have you ever saved one? Right? No, we cast them out. We're done with them. And this is what all the false priests do in your life, and they do with your life. They use you up and they spit you out. They offer comfort, but they end up using you up and spitting you out. But Jesus is the one who, even if you're a smoldering wick, he won't quench you, and he certainly never will discard you. I think that's so important. Look down at verse 7. See this as well, the same imagery. He brings healing to those without hope, the captives and the blind. The people who are most miserable and most hopeless are the people that he specializes in. And I, I think too often, I think I wrote too often the kids of testimonies, but I meant too often the kinds of testimonies that we hear in churches are from the successful and the beautiful and the people who, now that I have Jesus in my life, everything works just great. And I think that's terrible to do because... It, it just sort of puts such a burden on normal people. And it also really misrepresents what the Bible says about the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, basically, God does not choose the wise and the powerful and the influential. Not many of them, at least. So if you are one of those people, you still got a chance of getting in the kingdom. But there's not many of those people in the kingdom. He says, basically, he chooses the nobodies. He actually says he chooses the nothings to nullify that which is something. So in other words, he chooses the zeros. He chooses the nothings. God delights in working with the smoldering wicks and the bruised reeds, and he builds a glorious kingdom out of them. A glorious kingdom that he gets all the credit for because smoldering wicks and bruised reeds don't really have much to brag about. But God is building a glorious kingdom out of that. Wow. One of my favorite songs is uh, Steve Taylor. I know Levi's here, so his dad will be proud. But there's this great song on his album, Squint, which is really like one of the greatest sarcastic uh, records ever produced within the world of Christian music. Um, It's a great record. You track it down, Squint. Um, He's got a song in there called Jesus is for Losers. And there's this great line where he says, if Jesus is for losers then why do I still play to the crowd? See, so much of the way we live is based on this false premise that I've got to be somebody. I've got to be impressive. But the gospel comes and cuts your legs right out from underneath you and says, no, Jesus is for losers. The only thing you need is nothing. But, of course, that's the most difficult thing to get, isn't it? Because we just don't want to let go of anything. But if Jesus is for losers, we don't need to play to the crowd. Do you see what freedom that brings? To know that Jesus is the priest who comes and comforts and works with and nurtures and encourages those who have nothing to offer him is the greatest message of freedom you could ever hear. It means that you don't have to succeed at any sort of level for God to use you. And it means that no matter how much you failed, how long you failed, how far you've fallen, it doesn't matter. Because he won't snuff you out. And he still cares for you and comforts you and longs to set you free. He's not immune from suffering. In fact, he suffers from all the kinds of things that you suffer from. It's really interesting. In verse 3, it talks about a bruised reed and a smoldering wick. It's kind of hidden in the English translations, but those same words falter and bruised, smoldering and discouraged are the same Hebrew words. In other words, he experiences the same things you experience, but it doesn't stop him. He will not be thwarted. He will not be turned back from his purpose because the Lord is going to take him by the hand. The servant is going to be taken by the hand by the Lord and made a covenant for the people. Now, what does that mean? Well, the covenant, if you come to my Thursday Bible study in The curb, we talk about this all the time. But the covenant is basically God's promise to be our God and to make us his people. This is the promise he made to Abraham. It's the promise that he reiterates to Noah, even after the whole world has become just a complete wreck. He reiterates this promise. God has not given up on it. He reiterates it again to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to so on and so on. And what the Bible says... Is that this servant, Jesus, is the covenant promise realized? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says that that all of the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. That however many promises God has made, the NIV puts it, they are all fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is the one who is going to be made a covenant. What does that mean, to be made the covenant? It means that he's going to be the one who will live out everything that this promise God has made points to. In other words, the promise God is going to be with us and make us his people, Jesus is that promise in flesh. And the way it works out as the storyline of the Bible develops is Jesus is the one, Jesus is the one who does everything that the true servant of God should do. And he gives us credit for it. We get to have a relationship with God. We get to be his people, not because we do the covenant ourselves, but because Jesus is the covenant for us. And not only that, but all the ways that we break the covenant. Whenever we don't love God with all our heart and with all our mind and with all our soul. How many times you do that a day? Innumerable times. But the Bible says in Galatians chapter 3 that Jesus became a curse for us. That what we deserved because we weren't the covenant, we didn't live out the covenant, Jesus took. So he lived out all that the promise of God was on our behalf and he takes the curse. And therefore, he is the covenant for his people, all of us. The servant is the one in whom this is realized. So here's what you get. Jesus is the priest who cares so much about making things right that he dies to satisfy God's justice and to set prisoners free. See, Jesus' death was not just about securing people a get-out-of-hell-free card. Verse 4, right, says he's going to bring justice to the nations. And it's through Jesus being made a covenant and his life and his death, that that's going to happen. And Look at verse 10. Where does it go to? Look at this. God says, sing to the Lord a new song. Do You see, God wants us to sing. And he's committed to giving us something to sing about. Right? God wants us to sing. And Jesus comes to do something worth singing about. Now, you know I love old hymns. There's not a lot of hymns about Jesus. Thank you so much that I finally decided that I wanted you in my life, and I invited you in my life, and I pat myself on the back for that. I do know a couple songs like that. They're really dreadful songs, and they don't get sung very much because even people that say that kind of stuff in their theology just, just get a little nervous singing it to God. Remember Charles Spurgeon one time, a great Baptist preacher, was arguing with somebody about whether we choose God or God chooses us. And this guy was just adamant that, no, we choose God. He doesn't choose us. He, you know, it's all up to us. We have to do it. And Spurgeon said, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. How about we get down on our knees right now and we praise God for that? And the guy said, well, okay, you know, no. You can't do that, right? There, it's not worth singing about. This is worth singing about, that Jesus was made a covenant for the people's and a light to the Gentiles. That's worth singing about. Jesus has done the priestly work that we couldn't possibly do. And he's still interceding for his people. Do you know that? We sang it in that hymn. Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears. The bleeding sacrifice in your behalf appears before the throne My surety stands before the throne. My surety stands. My name is written on his hands that he holds up before God, the father, as if to say, you can't punish this one. Because I took their punishment. And my name is their name is written on my hands. Look. Right. That's a fascinating image because the prophets of Baal in the time of Isaiah They used to carve the name Baal into their palms to show how serious they were about their God. And the pain would be a constant reminder to them of who they served. But the gospel turns that image completely around. Isaiah actually talks about this. He talks about how God says, I have inscribed inscribed your name on my hands. And that's where Wesley gets that imagery. it's the idea that in the gospel, we don't have to hurt ourselves for God to notice us. That's the essence of paganism. That's the essence of all false religions in the world, is you have to do something to get God to notice you. But in the gospel, Jesus wounds himself so that he'll never forget you. And that's what Jesus does. And he's still interceding for us. He's still pleading his wounds before the throne, and he's still praying for us. Now, there are a lot of things, a lot of false priests that we look to to nurture us and comfort us. Things that we look to in order to deal with our guilt, but they all fall short of the comfort that we find in Jesus. This Jesus who can use smoldering wicks, who seem like they have nothing left to give. He doesn't discard them. He dies for them. Right? The false priests use you up and spit you out. But Jesus will never snuff you out, no matter how faint your life is. Jesus is the only one who can cleanse your conscience. He's the one who weeps with us, but he doesn't just do that. He takes it upon himself to put an end to suffering and pain by taking on himself the ultimate pain and confusion of the cross. That's what it means for him to be a covenant. He heals by being wounded. He opens our eyes by closing his and that's the one that is pictured for us here. Finally, Jesus is the mighty king. Now, the rest of Isaiah 42 describes this, right? And I won't talk about it all. I didn't even read all of it. I won't talk about it. But here's the thing about kings. Kings get things done. And God is committed to accomplishing what needs to be done. And the imagery he uses here is like a mighty warrior marching to battle. Do you see that in verse 13? Jesus is the one who is this mighty warrior marching to battle, full of zeal and passion. Look, it talks about in verse 13. He'll march out like a mighty man, like a warrior. He will stir stir up his zeal. Do not ever think that Jesus went to the cross in any kind of sort of hum-ho sort of way. Full of passion, full of determination, full of pain. Jesus does what needs to be done, and he can't wait to do it. Verse 14 is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. God is saying, basically, for a long time I've been holding back, but I can't wait to do this work. I can't wait to do it. Whoa. You can't wait to die on a cross? But look at the language here. Now, this is before the days of you know, anesthetics. Wendy had two you know, um, epidurals you know, that should have stopped the pain from her giving birth but by C-section, but the anesthesia didn't work. You can ask her if she can tell you about that, right? That's, that's got to be unbelievable. I can't imagine. I remember the first time I saw a friend of mine after college, a couple years after college, I was not anywhere near being married, didn't have a girlfriend, had never had a girlfriend, but I remember going to see this friend of mine. She had just given birth, and her eyes were literally bugged out of her head like from the pressure. It freaked me out, right? I don't know why my wife loves to watch those kind of shows on TV all the time. But listen, that's the imagery that God uses here. If you want to know how passionate God is about coming to do battle with death by taking on death, look at verse 14. For a long time I've kept silent. I've been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I'm screaming because I can't wait to come and to do battle with the things that battle against your soul. That's what he's saying. I can't wait to come and do battle. The only picture that can get at how how frustrated, maybe? I mean, when that baby is starting to come out, I know my mom told me that I was, I was full breech, right? So when I was being born, I was eight hours stuck part way out. My dad said that he looked in the, in the window, because in those days, the fathers weren't allowed in the birthing room, but there was a little glass window he, could, he would peek in. He could see the doctor with all his weight on my mom's stomach pushing and her screaming insanities at him. For eight hours. That's the imagery here. Can you imagine that? That's what it feels like for God. To wait. For thousands of years. Before he sent Jesus. That's, a, that's an unbelievable picture. But he get, does what he intends to accomplish. He conquers death. He conquers death. Right? Right? So the king differs from the prophet in this way. The priest gives vision, okay, of what needs to be done. Sorry, the prophet gives vision. The priest nurtures us. The king is to listen to the prophet and get things done. And Jesus is the king who submits in his whole life to the scripture. He doesn't do anything unless the scriptures say this is what he's to do. He is the mighty king, but he lives out the embodiment of what the king in Israel was to be, which is the one who listens to the prophet And structures his whole life around what God's word says. In Israel, you pretty much can sort of trace their history this way. As goes the king, so goes the nation. And the key to how goes the king is will he listen to God? Jesus is the one who listens to God. Says it is my meat and drink to do the will of my father. What about the false kings in our life? Kings are all about accomplishing things. They get things done. And I think, in so many ways, we are really the false king that Jesus is fighting against. We try to do things on our own strength rather than trusting in the true king. The false king is the pragmatist. He just wants to get it done. He doesn't care whether it fits in with how God's word directs him. Doesn't really care. God's word is a bother. It's just going to make things more difficult. And I think we live that way all the time, don't we? I do. False kings are things we look to in order to feel strong and avoid facing our weakness. But Jesus is the true king, the true prophet and the true priest. And this is fascinating. He's all three of these at once. You know this? He's all three of these at once. And I think so often we get a skewed view of who Jesus is because we want him to be just one of the three. Some people really like the the, uh, prophet Jesus, and they love to go around and tell other people what they need to do. And they think that Jesus is basically the one who tells us what's true, and we need to tell everybody else about it. They don't really like the comfort Jesus, who doesn't always tell bad people that they're doing bad things. Sometimes he like sits down and drinks with them. <laughs> and, and you know, people that just like the prophet Jesus don't know what to do with the priest Jesus. There were a lot of those in his own day. They're like, okay, good teacher, tell us all these cool things. Great. Now, why are you eating with those people? Don't you know who that woman is that's weeping and touching your feet? Come on, dude, right? Th- that's that that's what That's what we have. We always are like picking one Jesus that we want, but Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. And if he's not king, then it doesn't really his prophetic his uh, sorry priestly work isn't really very powerful. It's it's fine to know that Jesus weeps with you, and that's a wonderful, precious truth. But it's important that you understand that he did battle and he won the victory, and he's not still suffering in the grave weeping. He's risen from the dead. So his priestly work can't be separated from his kingly work. And you wouldn't know anything about it if he wasn't the prophet, the word of God, who has deposited in his church his word for us to continue to rely upon and to feed upon Christ by faith through his word. Right? You need all three. All right. Well, I was going to say something about about this last point, but I think you can just read it. But here's the the thing I was going to say is that what's fascinating is to see that the way that Jesus operates today, he still operates priestly, prophetically, and kingly through his church and through you. And here's what's fascinating. Everybody in this room who's a follower of Jesus, and I don't assume all of you are, I don't even know all of you, but everybody here who's a follower of Jesus, you've been gifted in some way to live out Jesus in this world. And one of the things that's interesting is that one of the keys to understanding how you're gifted is you tend to see problems in the church in lines with your gifts. And what I find happens so often, particularly with college students, is you tend to be a little idealistic. I don't think that's a bad thing, but I think one of the traps that can happen is you go to a church or some you know, kind of Christian group and you're like, well, you know, I thought that was pretty cool, but that, they're really, that's really bad. They're really not good at that. Um, And, boy, you know, I would like RUF a lot better if they did such and such. And here's the thing. The thing that you notice that we're missing is probably the thing that you're gifted to help us become. And yet what often happens is you'll leave and go somewhere that's already doing that, and then you'll sit on the sidelines instead of saying, well, here's a place that really needs this, and maybe this is a place where I could sort of jump in and serve. And help see the prophetic, priestly, kingly rule of Jesus come to a more visible manifestation in this group or in this church or on my campus. Right? God has gifted you somehow, if you're a Christian, to help make his prophetic role more visible or to make his priestly role more visible or to make his kingly rule more visible. So don't just... Rejoice that Jesus is the prophet, priest, and king. Ask yourself, in what way is he calling me to live his life out in the world in which he's put me? Right? Because it's so vital. We live in a world that is desperate to know that there is truth beyond just spin. We live in a world that is desperate to know that there is true comfort. True comfort that won't use and abuse you, take advantage of you. We live in a world that is desperate to know that things are going to be made right and that needs to know what to do. And Jesus offers all of that. But they'll never know unless his church, his people, live out the life that he wants us to live. So rejoice in who Jesus is, but also ask him, who have you made me to be and where do you want me to serve you? And you'll find that you'll fail at it without a doubt. And that's good because then you get to go back to Jesus and say, help. And he loves to help. He loves to help people who feel like smoldering wicks, who as they try to live out what gifts they think they have, they find that they're stumbling over themselves and about to put out their own you know, fire all the time. But Jesus, Jesus knows how to, how to comfort and how to, how to keep you going. Let's pray together.